Hi, everybody. I'm Patrick McEnroe, and this is Holding Court. All right, everyone. I'm unbelievably pumped up for this uh, podcast today on Holding Court. Patrick McEnroe here. Uh, I'm going to call him my good buddy. I've never met him in person, but I've been lucky enough to be on uh, one of his shows. There's so many, David Meltzer. I mean, you know, in, in looking you up, Okay, go by the way, everyone go to dmeltzer.com and there you will find everything you need to know about this great man and all the different platforms you've developed. I mean, I am jealous, my friend, but I, in a good way. Like this you, you are leading the way uh, in so many different directions. Thank you. I was on one of your shows. I think it was the Instagram Live, wasn't it? Was that the one we did together? I think so. And uh, you also were on Playbook, I think. Uh, the- yes. The podcast I just aired the podcast, which is really blowing up, which is a pleasure to have you on. But yeah, I'm I'm blessed to prove that consistency pays off. <laughs> well, the playbook is your podcast, and uh, in there you talk to business leaders, entrepreneurs, of which, of course, you are one. So, how long has that been going on, and and what what are you looking to do with that particular platform? You know, what I really want to do, all the content that I provide is to empower people to learn three things, how to make money so that they can help people and have fun. So I'm in a mission to empower people to be happy. And so the playbook's the leading platform. We've done over 1,100 episodes in four years. It started once a week. It's now to 10 episodes, 10 episodes of the playbook a week because we want to, you know, supply and demand. We have so many great people like you that actually are offering to come on and we keep them short. They're 20 minutes, uh, which seems to hold my attention at least. And then uh, we're able to teach the secrets of life, the playbooks to success, find common denominators between successful people in different industries. Well, one of the things that you you were asking me about when uh, I was lucky enough to come on your show was sort of my background and how, obviously, in the tennis world and growing up. But tell my listeners, who are obviously a lot of tennis fans, a lot of sports fans, a little bit how, how you got started and where you made your first big hit, your first big success. I know that was after law school. How did that transpire over the years? Sure. Just on the sports front, I am the average Division three football player, first of all, who goes to law school to please his mom, <laughs> graduates, ends up in technology. Uh, and even though my mom and Justice Scalia had the exact same saying uh, about legal research online in 1992, they both told me that nobody will ever do research on the Internet, that you need books. <laughs> this is how far we've come. So wow, when we're looking at NFTs and looking at crypto, right? This yep. is not a fad, people. You just have to figure out the capabilities of the technology because there will be a lot of fads within the context of Web 3.0. But there was a lot of fads, as you know, in Web 1.0 and 2.0. So understand the capabilities of the platform. Uh, and so for me, graduate law school, got in the Internet. Nine months later, millionaire. Went... We had our first exit in 95, $3.4 billion to Thomson Reuters. I was smart enough to not brand myself a lawyer. I went to the Silicon Valley up there by the great Stanford Institution, and I learned Sand Hill Road from Mark Kwame at Sequoia. I learned how to raise money, which, by the way, is a superpower. If you can't be a professional mm-hmm. athlete, then learn how to raise money. You will, you will, it'll be almost as good. Not quite as notable, <laughs> but money-wise, it's almost as good if you know how to raise money. Uh, that, that's a, a, a fact. I then uh, went ahead and became the CEO 
of the world's first smartphone. Uh, it was back then in 1999 called a convergence device. You converged mm-hmm. a phone and a laptop. In fact, it was called the PC-E phone initially. Uh, and then uh, I was blessed because of my technology background and because my younger brother who went to Harvard is kind of a freak. Lee Steinberg, the notable sports agent, he hired sure. me to be a CEO because of those two reasons, because I had a technology back. I looked like every other uh, you know, Jewish kid who wanted to be an athlete, that wanted to work for Lee, but I had a technology background, and my brother and him were at the same frequency, so I was one of the first people that could communicate with Lee and make him feel at ease. And those are the two reasons when people ask, why do you hire you? Those are why the reasons he hired me. Well, he obviously was smart to hire you because he got someone that had that, uh, that knowledge and technology, but what, what was it like for you with your background as a lawyer, making money in that area, and then as someone that knew so much about technology, what was it like for you coming into the sports world? Like, I mean, I know you played sports, but like all of a sudden having to deal with a big time power agent, what was that experience like? It was humbling, to be honest. You know, the cool thing is, and you probably get a great feel for this, I always thought, man, if I could just get my foot in the door. I always wanted to be in business of sports. I paid athletes like you to come to appearances. You know, I I was around big sporting events. I sponsored with Samsung the World Cup and got treated like a king. But I always said, man, if I could get in the inner circle, I wonder how competitive it is. And I will tell you that Lee Steinberg's greatest value to me was he could open any door within the context of sports. So not only was I a multimillionaire, but he gave me access to things that even billionaires couldn't do. You know, sidelines at the Super Bowl or ESPY awards or whatever it was, we had access to everything. Um, The most difficult thing was to keep adding zeros to my uh, mm. my own perception of business. You know, my first deal was with Georgia uh, Frontier, who owned the, the Rams. We were trying to buy, in 2008, uh, the Rams uh, financial $800, $900 million deal. And I had never done one deal that big with all these slash billionaire celebrities. And so, you know, that was the very first deal. And here, you know, inside Scoop, Lee, who is admitted now to have an addiction, uh, a disease, he was in rehab. And I was stuck doing a purchase of a team with John Shaw and Georgia. And this is my first week being CEO. (laughs) And Warren Moon, thank goodness, was my business partner at Lee's who put me on to Jeff Morad, who was the previous COO, who owned the Diamondbacks, later to own the Padres. Thank goodness he gave me guidance, but that was truly humbling. I learned at that time, you can't BS your way through this one. You got to ask for help. And I've used that lesson to carry me over the last 14 years. And so when you when you when you decided to leave um, Lee's company and sort of go off on your own, what was the impetus for you to do that? What was it you wanted to, like you said? I mean, the sports world. I mean, you you probably wanted to do even bigger deals, right, than you were doing in that particular world. And so, what what was it that made you say, okay, I've been here, I've done this. It's now to kind of, kind of time to move on to my thing, what I want to do. So, how did that begin? 
Well, you know, there's this thing that happened is I started seeing where limitations existed in my life. And the philosophy of mine was the only thing I'm going to let die growing up poor with a single mom. The only thing that's going to die in David Meltzer's lifetime is my limitations. So when they told me that I would never make the high school football team, I told them I was going to be an NFL player. Right. And I ended up playing in college to close to my potential. I'm just not born with great talent. But I used that philosophy, and while I was with Lee, I was learning, I was asking for help, and I started to realize that just being a sports agent was limiting, that I had a bigger vision in my life, that I wanted to make more money, I wanted to help more people. I loved you know, being able to create a purpose or a cause to everything that I did to have social impact and change because of the notoriety of the people that were around me. I could not only raise a lot of money, but if I could get a Vander Holyfield to do a PSA, a public service announcement that said real men don't hit women it would have a huge impact way more than anybody else and so these were the kind of things that really excited me and I decided I'm going to go ahead and create a business on my own one that I can impact and make even more money help more people and have more fun you want to you want to uh, your goal is a billion people right you want to make billion people happy and over uh, yeah over a billion. Well, now no, you started at a billion over you started a billion. at a billion <laughs> yeah and 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 you do it in so many different ways and i know you you've you know i've watched a bunch of your your videos I, you know, you got the uh, the elevator pitch you know the show you had there you talk about your own well-being and your own fitness and hiring a trainer and taking care of yourself so Tell, tell, tell the listeners a little about your philosophy on how to get the most out of yourself, obviously you personally, and then how that relates to you inspiring other people. Well, you know, I think you have to be pragmatic in the way. And so many people don't have consistent, persistent behavior. I believe if you can enjoy consistency every day, persistency without quit in the pursuit of your potential, not what other people want for you, not what you don't want or what's missing. If you put your attention and intention on what you want personally, experientially, giving and receiving wise every day with, of course, your midterm and long-term objectives in mind, not being afraid to change your mind. I, I love people that change their mind. I love hypocrites, in other words. You know why? Because they're fast learners. You know, uh-huh. people that sit there and have to hold on to the past and say, no, you know, I was right. The Internet's a fad. You know, no, I'm looking for people to change their mind and tell me why and teach me something. So if you know what you want, who you can help, who can help you, how best to get it done. And I use a lens of productivity. I want to provide value to others. I use a bifocal lens of accessibility. I utilize time to be more accessible to more people than most people I know on earth. And I love to access what I want. I've learned to ask to receive so I can give more. And of course, the most important lens that I have is the common denominator of happiness, a lens of gratitude. The ability to find the light, the love, and the lessons in everything. To be grateful is the common denominator. I don't care if you're sick or well, rich or poor, tall or short. If you're grateful, you'll be happy. And if you know your what, your who, and your how, the coolest thing happens. You know what to do now. You know how to prioritize. And prioritization is the antidote to not only procrastination, but to feeling overwhelmed. When people come to me and say, Dave, help me out. I feel so overwhelmed, this pandemic. I say, hold on a second. Let's say thank you together. They're like, what are you talking about? I go, when you feel overwhelmed, you're in a world of more than enough. You're abundant. You have more than enough to do, more than enough options, more than enough people to talk to, more than enough parties to go to. 
Now you got to learn to prioritize and you need to know your what, your who, and your how to prioritize what you want in order to apply your why, not keep searching for something you already have. I'm glad that I don't need to take notes on this, David, because uh, the amount of uh, brilliance you're uh, giving me in like like 60 second spurts. I'm so glad we're recording this as a podcast because this is like, you know, when I'm in class at Stanford, like, oh, my God, I got to get these notes down. How am I going to write this fast? So uh, thank goodness for technology for saving me here. But when you, you know, you go talk, you, I've seen you talk to sports teams, to football teams. Obviously, you do leadership conferences as well, where you talk to the business community. What's what's the what's your approach? You know, dealing with different entities, right? Dealing with different groups. I'm I'm, I'm assuming you go and talk to a college football team. It's a little different message than you know established CEOs. So, what's your preparation like, depending on who your audience is? My preparation is really simple. I prepare every day by codifying lessons. So my life is about lessons that resonate with me. And then I attach a notation of a story that best to me describes that lesson. Now, the key to the different audiences, and I'm probably a person who has a very wide range, even in a day, you might see me do, you know, a sports law talk, and then talk about literally tracing calligraphies in the energetic frequencies of the universe. <laughs> you know, I, I have I'm hanging out with Sad Guru and Tillman Fertitta in the same day, and right. these are two seriously different people. Um, but you know, for me, the key lesson that I've learned about speaking to different audiences is you have to learn what they're listening for. When I first started speaking, I wanted people to listen to me. And so I would have my set stories and lessons and I figured everybody needs to know this. And instead, I do trainings every Friday. I go live every day with Q&A, hot seat coaching. And the reason I do that, and I do meetups live, by the way, as I started traveling again, I meet people every single city I'm in. I'll go to Dallas, New York, and Augusta for the Masters. I'll do three meetups. But the reason I do it is I want to know what questions that a certain genre or group are asking. So I'm figuring out what people are listening for. So as I aggregate all these questions and say, here's a senior in college, they're really interested in transition, transition of career. And so I know what they're listening for. So now I gear the lessons and stories to what people are listening for. And I'm less concerned about what you're listening to and more concerned about what you're listening for. I wanna make you feel a certain way. And I, one of the greatest lessons, by the way, we talked about taking notes, and I'm like you. I used to take vigorous notes when I was in college. I have learned one thing, two types of people, ones that don't take any notes, think they're gonna remember everything, and one that write down everything when you're talking. And there's billions of dollars that are lost in here. What I suggest people do is only write down the lessons that resonate with you. And then put a little note of a story or some concept that will allow you to remember it. Create a system to access it. This is going to be the key to the future because there's so much information. You can't take it all down. Just what resonates with you, what makes you feel a certain way is what you should codify. And most importantly, create a system of access so that you can access these you know, unbelievable amounts of data that are coming your way every day. 
you've obviously been able to uh, do so many different things, right? Your books, uh, three tremendous books, I believe you've written. Do your podcast, obviously. Do your live stuff. What what is there any one particular thing you get more jacked for than than another thing? What, what it seems like you're the, obviously the type of person that likes to really interact with people individually. But what what gets your juices flowing the most, if that's possible? Yeah, for me, that, uh, you know, feeling of the athletic side of me, the one that I, you know, I, I'm the kid who used to pull off the, the street when the lights came on because I just love playing sports. The only thing that's ever hit that uh, magnitude for me is hot seat coaching. I love interviews like this. I love people asking me questions because I love to access information. I have learned to channel the answers. People say, you know, oh, can you do that speech for me, the one that you did at the Denny's, you know? I'm like, no, because <laughs> I have no idea what I said, you know? Right. And I'll All answer right. these, this interview. I won't remember. So I love hot seat coaching as if I was taking batting practice or doing drills as a defensive back in college. I don't know what it is about me, but I have a innate love for being able to be of service to others and access information for them and get credit for, I call genius the expression of God. I love getting credit for expressing what's coming through me that I have no idea where and how it's coming. So this hot seat coaching, I mean, I was reading up on your website and it, you, you, I think you just said you're doing it every day because uh, you, you need to update your site because I think it says on your site every Friday you do it like at 11. So now you're loving it so much that it's, I, now I you're do, doing it every training, day. Right. I do free training. Okay. Yeah, I do. I do hot seat coaching every day. But yeah, the training I've done training for free on Fridays for over 22 years, every okay, Friday. So that's different um, from the hot seat coaching. Those trainings. Yeah, the hot seat coaching is just a Q&A session. Gotcha. Okay. It's, 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 that's what I'm saying. I mean, if you keep track of all the different things you're doing, it's like unreal. All right, so what about um, you mentioned your sports. I got to ask you a little bit about tennis because, uh, you know, I got a lot of tennis people that listen to my podcast, and we talked a little bit about it when you were interviewing me, of course. But what 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 is your take on the sport overall? What do you like about it? What do you don't like about it? Uh, I could go on and on, of course, but I'd like to hear from you. Your thoughts. Well, the first thing I like about tennis is it's for everyone. Um, and, you know, obviously the notoriety of tennis with King Richard and now Will Smith taking the movie to the next level in so many different directions. <laughs> taking a few um, other things to the next level. It's a sport that you can play for <laughs> Exactly. Uh, but tennis is something that you can play for life. It's funny because I never played tennis till I got older. I played doubles with my wife now um, at least once a week, and I absolutely love it. I love the movement. I love the exercise and how it works. Um, but I, I really have always enjoyed watching tennis. I've enjoyed watching you, your brother, of course, as well. Uh, but I love the fact that out of all the sports, think about it, women's tennis may be more popular and economically more viable than men's tennis. And that's not true in soccer, even though the women's USA team is so much more successful. It's not true in golf by far. I can barely get a golfer. If I was doing endorsement deals, I could barely get the world's best golfers for free clothes. Like literally, it's, it's remarkable. But in tennis, uh, we have this equ uh, equity. We have this great sport that you can play for life. Um, obviously, what I don't like about it still is it, it's elite. 
you know, in, in mm-hmm. watching King Richard, it's still an elite sport that I think, you know, could be played in more places by more people of, of more backgrounds, especially in the at-risk area. It's a great sport to teach. And I think we paid more attention to giving more kids opportunities to play tennis. We'd see a different level of tennis as proven by Serena and Venus, obviously. Well, you're, 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 you're right and wrong. So I'm going to tell you what you're right about. Uh, cause you're right by the fact that women tennis players are the most successful financially speaking of any, uh, athletes in the world in, in women's sports, I believe nine of the top 10 highest rate, um, paid athletes are tennis players. Uh, I think the one tenth is probably a golfer. Um, you're not quite right about the fact. Well, maybe the United States, you know, it, it kind of goes back and forth, partly because the Williams sisters, but certainly in other parts of the world, Europe, especially where tennis is, is very popular. Uh, the men's tennis is a lot more popular than women's tennis in those countries. Uh, but tennis, you're right, because the prize money is is equitable in most in all the big tournaments and in a lot of the other tournaments. Not all. If you still look at the overall prize money, there's still more in the men's game overall. And the, the men would argue, well, that's because we have more sponsors and more people watching right. TV globally. Um, but you're 100% right. And, in fact, I use this a lot of times, David, when people are asking me, where are the great American male players? And I say, imagine if you had a child, and you, you have a your middle-class upbringing, your, your son or your child is, is a great athlete. You can see that at five or six. And if they're a boy, let me ask you this, David, uh, what sport would you put them in? Yeah, well, probably today lacrosse, but that's just well, because okay. of my genetic, my genetic background. Genetics, I, right? I, if I if I could put my if my son would do it, without a doubt, I put my kid in golf, right? If a right. boy, I I'd like him to play golf because he can play professionally or in college, around the richest people in the world. Uh, you know, and obviously I have a business networking background, but I just think playing golf is a career choice, uh, not just necessarily being professional, but I mean, utilizing golf in your career. Yeah, utilizing golf in your career socially and business wise. OK, what about uh, if you had a daughter who was who, what, what? Let's say you had a daughter and you wanted her to be a professional athlete and you yeah. thought, wow, she's a phenomenal athlete. You know, hand T- tennis, coordination. For sure. tennis. Tennis. Well, that's why we have a lot of great. Um, diversity. I remember talking to one when I ran the USTA program for player development um, years ago, our head of men's tennis, he was at one of the national tournaments for 12 and under boys that, you know, they take place in the summer. I said, coach, I said, what do you see there? He says, I see a lot of parents with Rolexes. <laughs> right. You know? And I said, well, did you go to a, and you go to a girls and I'm generalizing, obviously, but you go to a girls tournament, as I've done even myself in the last few years, my, my daughter's a pretty good junior tennis player. So I travel around the New York area for the most part. You see African-American girls, you see Asian girls, you see Indian girls, you see lots of Eastern Europeans, you know, that their parents just moved here. So you see that type of diversity, I think, a lot more um, in, in girls' tennis. And I think that translates into why in the last 20 years we've had a lot more success of women at the top of your game. But you're right. The Williams sisters obviously leading the way for many of those young African-Americans and others, too, to get into tennis. Yeah, and yet Tiger, you had thought, would have had that effect in golf for men. Um, and yet, whatever reasons are beyond us, you know, it still has had a minor impact 
with the amount of, you know, young African-American or black players. And I'm someone who's worked in, you know, my marketing career. So my biggest accomplishments have been to represent Warren Moon, Jackie Robinson, the Clemente family, uh, you know, and now, you know, these are the things that I think when I talked about social impact, that we have to provide people that look like us to say, Oh wait, he's a Warren Moon's a milestone. One of the biggest accomplishments, just mindset-wise in America. Warren and I, when we started working together, uh, I said my goal. He said, "What's your goal?" I said, "I don't ever want to hear black quarterback. I'll hear tall quarterback, short, bad quarterback. Mm-hmm. You know, stupid quarterback. I'm good with that." But we've achieved that. We we've changed the genre. We've worked with you know from Cam Newton down. Nobody rarely thinks about a big deal, whether there's a black or white quarterback anymore. There's just bad and good ones, uh, which we really think is a huge accomplishment, considering when Warren Moon had to go to Canada, because a lot of young people, they may not know this, six years, probably the greatest quarterback out of college who won the Rose Bowl as a 16-point underdog, MVP of the Rose Bowl, had to go to Canada Edmonton, of all places, as an L.A. kid for six years to finally come to the NFL where he broke every single record and was the highest paid player finally after people said he wasn't smart enough to be a quarterback. Absolutely amazing. No, it's amazing that you, you've been connected with him for so long. All right. Tell me before we go, um, what is next for you? So I'm developing, I have an Apple TV deal, and I've been blessed. Martha Stewart and I both have this deal to provide entrepreneurial content to Apple TV. So I have Two Minute Drill, Office Hours is the first late night uh, TV show that's on Bloomberg, but it's going on Apple TV as well. We'll be launching that. We just filmed that at The Win in my studio in Las Vegas there at the lobby. So stop by. But we're developing all of these great pieces of content to inspire and educate entrepreneurs, innovators. And the reason I think it's so important is that let's take sustainability, our environment. We need to make sure that we are responsibly and sustainably creating all these different practices. But the real reason we're doing it is to give entrepreneurs and innovators time to cure the problem because we're not going to stop using plastic. So we need to figure out how to convert plastic to food or to fill up the the hole in our environment. And the only people in history that have been able to cure the world in these ways are entrepreneurs. So I'm on a mission uh, to create this great content. It's my biggest thing. And there's so many great people out there doing great shows. I can't wait to get more up there on Apple TV. Well, I look forward to seeing you there, David, and I appreciate you coming on with me. Thank you for returning the favor. Good luck with everything. I hope we get to meet uh, soon in person. And yeah, maybe a little trip to Vegas might be in order for me to meet the man himself. I would love that anytime. And you're welcome on my new shows as well. So we're not going to stop inviting you. Sounds good. David Meltzer, everyone here on Holding Court. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media. Media.